Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is the opening sermon in a series on the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew opens the New Testament with a genealogy, which for us moderns is a signal to move on until the plot gets interesting. But what is boring for us was a bombshell for Matthew's first century audience. This isn't just a genealogy. This is a very artful Hebrew way of saying that Jesus is the culmination not only of the Old Testament, but of all of human history up to that point, and that Jesus has revolutionized heaven and earth and made everything new. To find out how Matthew says all of that in a genealogy, you will have to listen to the sermon. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, down through verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab. Amminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon... Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Let us ask God to bless our consideration of his word. Lord God, you have given us your word, even genealogies like this, that we should understand and grow thereby. We pray that you would lend us your spirit, that we would understand and not just understand, but that the truth would come into us by the spirit and become us, that it would transform us to the praise of the glory of your grace, we pray. Amen. Well, Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy, and that would seem to be a rather boring way to open the New Testament. 
But what seems boring to us was a bombshell to first century Jews. They immediately would have recognized Matthew's opening words, the book of the genealogy, or perhaps a better translation would be the book of the generations. The Greek is Biblos Genesios, book Genesis, the book of the generations. They would have immediately recognized that Greek phrase as an exact quote from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Not just a quote, but a very significant quote, because that little phrase, Biblos Genesios, Book of the Generations, appears only twice in the entire Septuagint. There are lots of genealogies in the Septuagint, lots of genealogies in the Old Testament, but there are only two books of generation. It's a unique phrase. It appears once in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, where it refers to the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth. And it appears once in Genesis 5.1, where it refers to the book of the generations of Adam. So there's only two things out of all the genealogies of the Old Testament, there's only two things who have a book of generations about them. One is the heavens and the earth, and the second is Adam. Two things that have cosmic significance and that are forever tied together. For we know that as Adam went, so went the creation. Now, as I said, this would have been an absolute bombshell to any first century Jew who either read it or who heard it. Their heads would have snapped up as soon as they heard those words. Because of the significance of what was being said would have been apparent to them. Matthew is immediately associating Jesus with Adam. Of course, Adam is the primogenitor, the father of the human race. Adam is the one who God made not through another person, but whom God made directly, and whom God breathed the breath of life into directly. Adam was the father of the human race. The whole earth was linked to Adam. Because of Adam's sin, the whole earth came under a curse. And so when they heard that, they would have known that Matthew was associating Jesus with Adam. When he opens this way with these words, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, Matthew is heralding to the whole world that Jesus is a new Adam. He is the father of a new human race. He is the inaugurator of a new creation. For if you have a new Adam, you have a new creation. You have a new heavens and a new earth. He is saying immediately that Jesus has made everything new. He is saying that there's no one, no place, no thing that's not affected by this Jesus Christ and what he has done. Now, the immediate question that any first century Jew would have had is, how is it that this Jesus Christ has done this? How is it that Jesus, out of all the people who have existed since the beginning of the world, how is it that Jesus is the first person who has come along since Adam, who belongs in the same category with Adam and the first heavens and the first earth? 
Nobody else has made it into that category. Not David, not Abraham, and none of their sons. Nobody. Now Jesus belongs in that category. He is a new Adam. He has made everything new. How has Jesus done this? Well, that's what the whole New Testament was written to answer. And Matthew begins by giving us part of that answer. Matthew begins the answer by telling us in verse 1 that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now that's a Jewish way for Matthew to say that Jesus has inherited the throne of David and the blessings of Abraham. You remember that God made covenant blessings to Abraham that through Abraham and specifically through Abraham's seed, he was going to bless all families of the earth. Paul tells us in Galatians that this was the gospel God was talking to Abraham about. The God's promises to Abraham and to his seed picked up the promises that God had made to Adam and Eve about Eve's seed, the seed of the woman who was going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So you have that first promise given to Adam and Eve about the seed of the woman, picked up and added to and developed by God's promises to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, he's going to bless all the families of the earth. And then that promise is picked up again in God's covenant and promises with David when he specifies that this one, the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham, that all of this is going to be done through is going to be the seed of David and is going to sit on the throne of David. And so Matthew is saying that Jesus has become a new Adam. He has inaugurated a new creation by inheriting these promises to Abraham and these promises to David. He is the son of David who sits on David's throne. He is the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, who has received Abraham's blessings. That just leads to another question that every first century Jew would have had and that we ought to have. All right, how has Jesus accomplished that which neither Abraham himself, nor David himself, nor any of their David's royal sons could accomplish? How is he greater than Abraham? How is he even greater than David? Again, that is a question the New Testament was written to answer. And Matthew begins this answer with a riddle wrapped inside an enigma. And that's what this genealogy is all about. This is not just a genealogy. It's not just a tracing back of the human forefathers of Jesus' humanity. This genealogy to every first century Jew was a story. And this story was an enigma. And inside this enigma, Matthew is introducing a riddle. And that is his answer. That's the beginning of his answer as to how. How Jesus has accomplished all of this. Well, the enigma that Matthew introduces through this genealogy is the enigma of Israel herself. Israel was an enigma. Israel was always at war with herself. 
She was always at war with her calling and her destiny. She was always self-destructing. She was always missing out on her inheritance. And because she was missing out on her inheritance, she was blocking God's blessing to the whole world, as it were. God had called Israel out as a priestly nation, which means he's calling them out to be his special people, but he's also calling them out to, to kind of like be representatives of mankind and through whom God's truth and blessing should have proceeded to all of mankind. So Israel was supposed to be this kind of super highway of God's truth and blessing to all the nations of the world. But instead of being a super highway of blessing, Israel had ended up being like a big tractor trailer turned over on the interstate. And nothing's getting through. She's damming up God's blessings and God's truth because, why? Because of her own unfaithfulness. She was always shooting herself in the foot. And so the feeling that many, many Jews had at the time of Jesus' birth, and what Matthew here is affirming is that Israel was God's people. She was still in exile. She was still in captivity. You remember she got led off uh, by Babylon into captivity ultimately after many, many years of sins and unfaithfulness of God to God. But then after 70 years... Uh, she had been permitted to come back under the Persian uh, Empire and to, be, to rebuild the temple and over time to rebuild the walls of the city and rebuild the city and so forth. But the thing was is that she never was out from under the power. She was kind of like a political football between all of these different empires that arose. First the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks' empire of Alexander the Great, and of course Alexander died in his early 30s, and then his empire was immediately uh, thrown into turmoil because his four generals began to squabble with one another. It got divided into four, and they began to fight uh, back and forth with one another for, uh, to increase their power and their geographical uh, domain. And Palestine, where Israel was, just was like a political football that kept getting kicked back and forth between one empire and another. And then you had Antiochus Epiphanes, who came about, who had desecrated the temple, uh, who was bound and determined to eradicate everything that was Jewish and to make the Jewish the Jews Greeks. And this had quite a bit of influence. Uh, we think we're the only ones who have problems with our youth. But by the time of the first century, it was a major problem within Jewish circles of having young men, for example, who want to go out and hang out at the gymnasium where you go and you exercise and so forth. And they were actually trying to eradicate evidence of their circumcision because they want to fit in. They want to be like the Greeks. And so uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was trying to force them to be Greeks. He's trying to eradicate, stop all the temple sacrifices, stop the temple services, stamp it out completely. And that's what led to the, um, the revolt of the Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer, who, who led uh, Israel in a successful uprising and was able to retake the temple, to cleanse the temple, and to re-begin 
the um, sacrifices, and that's what Hanukkah commemorates uh, still to today. But here was the problem. Here was this great moment under the Maccabees, but after that great moment, the father died, and then the oldest brother ended up dying, and then you have it kind of things going down to younger brothers. And what they started doing right from the start was cutting deals with the local powers who were coming in, Syria and others like that, cutting deals uh, to have peace with them uh, in return for whichever particular Maccabee it was being made high priest. And so they were kind of made like high priests and also functioned as kind of a king over Israel too. Of course, under the Old Testament law, those two offices were separated. And the other problem was is that the Maccabees were not of the Levitical line. They were not legitimate priests at all. So here's this great victory under the Maccabees, and then almost immediately the Maccabean line becomes this corrupt political line. It's corrupt religiously and it's corrupt politically. And it began, and the Maccabees, uh, the, the, they were often called the Hasmonean line of high priests. And they were, the, they were the ones who were still the high priests at the time of Jesus. They began to act just like the pagan rulers. They were all about themselves, their political power. They began to cut deal after deal after deal with Rome and so forth to maintain in power. So for a devout Jew, somebody like Mary, somebody like Joseph, somebody like Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, somebody like Elizabeth, uh, uh, John the Baptist's um, mother, the people like that, this was not a happy time. Now for us, Advent is such a, a special season and it's associated I know for me, and I think for you too, with so many good uh, memories. And, and some of it is uh, sentimental, and I'll admit it, and I like it, I have to say. We, we have, a, um, we have a, a tradition in our home that through Thanksgiving, we can't play any Christmas music. But the day after Thanksgiving is when I go to get the Christmas tree, and that's when we turn on the Christmas music. And, of course, we play... We do play um, uh, all of the, you know, Silent Night and all the hymns, but we also play Johnny Mathis singing chestnuts, roasting on an open fire, and all that smalty stuff. And I love that stuff. Um, so, yeah, it, and so there's a, particularly in a country as blessed as ours, just so many uh, really fond uh, memories that are associated with Christmas and the Advent um, season. But what we have to understand is that that's just not the way it was in the first century. It was not a happy time. We need to put out of our minds uh, pictures of, uh, you know, of, a, of uh, beautiful manger scenes and of, of a, uh, you know, blessed agrarianism and that kind of stuff. We need to conjure up really feelings of coldness, feelings of um, angst feelings of uh, oppression, political turmoil, economic hardship. Most of the Jews lived under economic hardship. Only a, a few were rich. These are the ones who got in with the Romans, either, either the high priestly line or tax gatherers and ones like that. Most of them were under a crushing load of debt and trying to make ends meet. And so for, for 
Jews, like the parents of Jesus, like the parents of John the Baptist, um, there's this feeling that we've never made it out of captivity. We've never really returned from exile. And that's exactly the point, or one of the points, that Matthew is making through this genealogy. You notice in this genealogy, four times he mentions the exile, the captivity, in verse 11 and 12 and 17. Four different times he talks about them being carried off to Babylon, carried off into captivity. He never once mentions any return. No reference. And so he's signaling through that that they've really never returned from exile. And that really brings us to the heart of the problem. And it was a growing feeling with, with the Orthodox and the, and the true believing Jews at the time. It was that we're the problem. Israel's the problem. It was Israel's own unfaithfulness and her treachery that had landed her in exile in the first place. Israel was like the proverbial leopard that cannot change its spots. Israel could not change her ways. She could not change her heart. And Matthew drives this point home very artistically, very subtly, by doing something that is very, very rare for ancient genealogies. He includes four women. Typically, there are no women mentioned at all. He mentions four in the genealogy of Jesus. First, he mentions Tamar in verse 3. Now, John read to us this morning, and he and I did not talk. Did you know, did you look at what we were going to be talking about? And Oh, all right. That's why he's an elder. All right. So first is Tamar. Tamar was the... Um, daughter-in-law of Judah. She was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur. And we're specifically told that God killed Ur because he was wicked. We're not told the details. But somebody's got to be really wicked before God says, I'm killing them. Then we have Judah's uh, next brother, I mean, Ur's next youngest brother, who is supposed to take Tamar's wife and raise up a descendant for his older brother, Ur. We, we're told how he was thinking about himself and nothing else. He didn't want to do that. He said, well, they're not going to be my descendants. I'm not going to do this. And the Lord killed him. So Judah's first two oldest sons are killed by God because of their wickedness. All right? Now, what does that tell you about Judah? What does that tell you about Judah? First two sons, God says, I'm killing them because they're wicked. All right? Well, we find out more about Judah because he refused to do what the Lord called him to do, to raise up any lineage unto his son. He refused to give his third son because then say, well, he may die too. And so we also uh, get this little glimpse of Judah as a very selfish man, very self-centered, very immoral, because he ends up going into whom he believes is a prostitute. Well, the prostitute actually is Tamar, 
who is not a prostitute. She's a righteous girl who has her mind on the things of the Lord, wants to do what the Lord says and be right by it. But the only way she can do this is to pose as a prostitute. Now, why in the world would she come up with a scheme posing as a prostitute and thinking that this is going to appeal to Judah? What must she know about Judah ahead of time to think such a thing is going to work? Why wouldn't she think that such a man of God from the lineage of God, God's own special people, one of the sons, one of the patriarchs, one of the sons of Isaac, why wouldn't she think that he would be repulsed and never do such a thing? Well, that's not what she thought. She thought the opposite, and she was right. So she disguises herself as a harlot. She tricks Judah into fulfilling his God-given duty to his deceased son. Now she's pregnant. So what does Judah do then? When she starts showing, it can no longer be hid. Other relatives come to him and say, you know, Tamar has been playing the harlot because she's pregnant. So what does Judah, this fine fellow, do? She must die. He's self-righteous. He's a hypocrite to the max. She must die. So Tamar then has to expose him. She held a couple of his personal items as surety until he could pay her. And it's only because she could produce these publicly that her life is spared. And then ultimately Judah must confess, Tamar is more righteous than me. Remember, righteous is not just a term that means correct conduct generally. It means walking in a relationship with God, being faithful to God. He's saying uh, that she is more righteous, she's more faithful to God than me. So by putting in Tamar, by dropping that name, Matthew is evoking this whole saga regarding Judah. Now why would he do that? Well, because God promised through Jacob in Genesis 49 verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Do you see a problem? The scepter shall not depart from Judah? Yeah, that's Matthew's point. Who is Judah? Then he mentions two Gentile women. He mentions Rahab, the harlot of, of, of Jericho. And he mentions Ruth, the Moabitess, both in verse 5. Rahab, of course, was the one when Israel came to take the first city of the land in Jericho and the spies were sent there. She already had heard about Israel. She had heard about the Lord and the Lord's blessing of Israel. And she already has faith. She is responding in faith. She is responding saying, the God of Israel is the true God. And I'm not going to trust in these massive walls, these great walls. I'm not trusting in them. I'm going to align myself with the God of Israel. I'm going to trust in him. And so she hides the spies out and she helps. She lies to her own people. She lies to the authorities. And specifically because she lies to those who are doing evil and helps the spies escape, she is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Fame of Faith. 
So here is tremendous faith on the part of a Gentile woman, not one of God's people, but a Gentile woman, and furthermore, a harlot living in Jericho. And then you have Ruth, the Moabitess. She lived during the time of the judges. She lived during a time of very low faith and faithfulness within Israel. Her husband has been kind of a spiritual doofus and has led her out of the land into uh, pagan lands. And there she ends up losing her husband and she loses her two sons. And she's left with two daughters-in-law. One of them goes back to her people, and we know that Naomi uh, encourages Ruth to go back to her people too. She's trying to think, she's basically saying, look, I have nothing, so I don't want you to share my afflictions. Go back to your family, uh, go back to your people. And, of course, we have Ruth's very famous uh, speech where she says no. And again, Ruth is not going to say, where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. This is not faith in Naomi. This is faith in Naomi's God, whom Naomi has borne testimony to through her life. And so, again, we have this tremendous faith by this Gentile woman, a a Moabitess. That's one of uh, Israel's great enemies, the Moabites. And she has this tremendous faith. And when you look at the faith of a Tamar, when you look at the faith of a Ruth, it's almost, and you really read the story and you consider what's going on, it's almost unnerving. It almost is upsetting. I mean, unnerving, that's the right word, to look at that kind of faith and to consider what kind of faith that I have or maybe you have. And you consider the price they paid and the things they did Because of their faith. So you have two Gentile women here. Rahab and Ruth. Both of whom exemplify the faith and the devotion and the constancy that Israel should have shown but never did. You don't see this kind of faith really much within Israel. But here you see it with these two Gentile women. And that's why Matthew mentions them. Israel never really showing the faith that she should. But here, lo and behold, here's these two Gentile women who do. So Israel can't complain that she wasn't in a good enough environment or that she didn't receive a good enough education, that it's a data problem, it's an information problem, it's an education problem, it's an environmental problem. We didn't have a fair shot, God. God just points to Rahab and he points to Ruth. And that shuts up all the mouths. And finally, Matthew mentions Bathsheba, not by name. He delicately refers to her as she who had been the wife of Uriah. And the way that he, the the fact that he doesn't say her name, but he mentions her that way, brings to mind all of the cover up and the sick sin uh, that David was guilty of. Murder, adultery, lies, deception, cover-up. These were the actions of King David. You remember, he's, he's not out with the armies. He's not leading God's, people's, leading God's armies in the field. He's enjoying himself back at home. He sees Bathsheba. He wants her. He takes her. 
Uh, he commits adultery with her. She becomes pregnant. Now he wants to cover it up. So he has Uriah, who is a Gentile by birth, by the way, who's serving in the army of David. Now here's another Gentile coming into the picture, who's serving in the armies of the Lord. He brings Uriah back, and he tells, uh, he thinks, okay, I'll, I'll hold Uriah here uh, for a couple of days. Uriah will go home. He will sleep with his wife. He'll think the baby's his. David's not, he's not thinking about truth. He's not thinking about righteousness. He's not thinking about nothing but himself, his sin, and getting away with his sin. Well, Uriah then ends up sleeping in the palace. And so and, and he doesn't go home to his wife. And David asked him, well, why did you go home to your wife? He said, my brothers are in the field fighting the battles of the Lord. Am I going to go home to my wife and enjoy my home? No, I'm not going to do that. So we see that Uriah, again, there's this unnerving faith and faithfulness that he has um, toward God and toward God's uh, people. So David says, okay, this is what I'll do. I'm going to get him drunk. So David wines and dines him that night, gives him lots of good wine. It's the king's wine. It's the best you can get. And um, thinking, okay, now he'll go home. But Uriah doesn't. And so the the irony and the point of this whole um, episode is that here you have David, the king, of the, of, of the tribe of Judah. It is on David's throne that the Messiah is going to sit. And here you have Uriah, this Gentile by birth. And Uriah drunk is better than David sober. That's the picture. Then we know that David has to come up with another plan. Now he plots to kill Uriah. I have to kill him so that I can take Bathsheba as my wife. But in order to kill him in such a way that it's covered up, he he tells the commander to send Uriah, send send a group of the men up next to the wall of the city, which is something you didn't do in ancient warfare, because if you get up right under the wall, they throw things down on you like big rocks, boiling oil, and stuff like that. It's, It's a suicide mission. You stay back from the wall. And she said, send a bunch of men up to the wall. Make sure Uriah is with them. David knows what's going to happen. He's going to kill him. Then the thing that we often miss is that David kills Uriah. He has him killed. But he wasn't the only man who died. What about the other men who have nothing to do with this whole sordid thing? Who have their own wives and their own children who are going to die all so David can cover this up? You know, murder, adultery, cover-up, lying. These were all the actions of the man after God's own heart. Now, the point of that story is not that David really wasn't the man after God's own heart. He really was. Think about it. That is the point. If these are the actions of the man after God's own heart, then where does that leave the rest of us? Where does that leave the rest of Israel? It just shows, again, the leopard can't change its spots. Israel can't change her heart. David can't change his heart. And neither 
can we? Fourteen generations of Davidic kings had landed Israel where? In Babylonian captivity. And then 14 generations after that, the house of David is still under the curse of the covenant. Matthew's point, Israel needs a new kind of son of David. Because not even David could live up to this. Israel needs a new kind of son of David, but how? How will someone, how will this Jesus do what David himself could not do, what Solomon himself could not do? So this is the enigma of Israel, and it is a hopeless enigma. There is apparently no solution to this enigma. Now Matthew brings the solution, and he says, here's the solution, it's Jesus. But instead of giving a straight-ahead answer, Matthew takes this enigma, which is Israel, and he goes, and he takes and he puts a riddle in the middle of it. And he says, here's the answer, it's this riddle. And the riddle is Jesus himself. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of Abraham. But the problem is, how is he there in, in any sense their father? Now, you may ask, why am I asking that question? Well, remember, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. What company does that put him in? It puts him in the company of Adam and the company of the heavens and the earth. And when you go back and you look at the book of generations of Adams, who does it talk about? Does it talk about Adam's ancestors? There are none. The book of the generations of Adam talk about Adam's descendant. It's talking about his children and his grandchildren, all of those who are created from him. And it talks about their history. So it's going downstream, not upstream. A normal genealogy goes upstream. There is no upstream from Adam. Just God. The book of the generations of Adam is downstream. Same thing with the heavens of the earth. God made them directly. There's no upstream other than God himself. The book of the generations of the heavens of the earth is the story of the heavens of the earth and everything that was made from them. So when Matthew says that the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, what he's talking now about the descendants of Jesus Christ. Not ancestors. Descendants. He's talking about the history of Jesus Christ and all of those who were made from him. And then we get this, you see why I say a riddle inside an enigma, because you're going to go, yeah, but humanly speaking, these are all the ones who came before Jesus, but if this is the book of the generations of Jesus, then that means that Jesus is somehow their father. How does that work? How is Jesus both the branch of David... As it says in Isaiah, there's going to arise a branch of Jesse, a branch of David. How is he the branch of David? And then as it says elsewhere in Isaiah, the root of David. How does he come from David and produce David at the same time? Or stated in the words of um, Psalm 110, And the riddle that Jesus himself posed to the Jewish leaders, how is Jesus David's son and David's Lord? Right? Wasn't that the riddle 
Who is the riddle? The riddle is Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the riddle that's the answer to the enigma of Israel. How is he David's son and David's Lord? Somehow, he's both the branch and the, brood, uh, the branch and the root of David. Somehow, he's both David's son and David's Lord. Again, how? How does this work? Again, that is the question that the New Testament was written to answer. You answer that question. Answer the riddle of Jesus. And you will answer the enigma of Israel and solve it. Answer the riddle of Jesus and you will learn how it is that he's a new Adam, how he has begun an altogether new human race, and how he has made the heavens and the earth themselves new. And we will begin looking at that answer next week. But for this week, we want to consider some of the implications of the fact that Matthew tells us we are no longer living in the book of the generations of Adam. You see, that's really the title of the Old Testament. After creation week, the whole rest of the story of the Old Testament is the book of the generations of Adam and of the first heavens and the first earth. When Matthew says the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, he's, that's not just the opening line of his gospel. That's the title of the New Testament. That's the title of human history from that point on. We're living in a new book. We're living in a new heavens and a new earth. We're not living in the same world that existed before the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now vestiges of that old world still exist, as you know and I know. But they're on their way out. They cannot stand, for Christ has fundamentally changed the nature of heaven and earth. For the first time ever, Jesus, a man, a true man, just as truly a human as you and I, he has been glorified, he's been given all power and authority, and all judgment has been committed into his hand. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, Satan has no standing in the courtroom of God. He has no legal case to bring. He has no legal claim over man or the earth. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, the Spirit of God has been poured out on the earth and indwells the people of God. Not just in their midst, but in them. In them. They are the bride of the Lamb. So the calendar of the world has restarted. Truly. And so you see, when the church began calling all years after the birth of Christ, now they, they calculated it off by four years, but that's, that's okay. The point is, is beginning with the birth of Jesus Christ, they began calling all years after that point Anno Domini. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The year of our Lord. And what we need to understand is that this was not some kind of a propaganda campaign uh, brought about by some religious sect. They were simply telling the truth. They understood it. One of the things that was really big to the early church fathers that we've almost altogether lost uh, going back to late medieval 
theology all the way to today is the whole idea that Jesus Christ harrowed hell. The whole imagery of the gates of hell, you know, being trampled. That was a big deal to them. That was a big part of their theology. And in the Middle Ages, it's true that that got some accretions to it that were kind of goofy. They, they got the idea of Jesus paying a ransom. Jesus was a ransom. And then they began to um, create permutations on that. And they're going, well, if he paid a ransom, then he had to pay a ransom to somebody. So who did he pay a ransom to? Well, it couldn't be God the Father. He must have paid a ransom to Satan. He paid a ransom to Satan. And so it began to get some really goofy aspects to it. And because of the goofiness, Aquinas and others began to, to say, they just began to throw the whole, that whole theology out and began to focus on the cross as simply being a satisfaction of God's justice. And that's an aspect of it. But they began to, but they began to make that really the exclusive dynamic and the exclusive uh, drama of the cross was simply satisfying the justice of God and paying for sins. And they lost this whole other aspect. But we need to, we need to get the baby back without the bathwater. I think that's a very important thing because John himself, John, the Apostle John, in his first epistle, gives what is probably the most succinct statement of the gospel in the entire Bible. He says, for this reason, the Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. And that's the way he puts it, as a destroying of the works of the devil. And so when we, when we say the word ransom, we come up, we immediately think of a kidnapper, right? Ransom is a kidnapper. So we think of an illegitimate type of a situation, and the ransom has to be paid to the kidnapper to get the person back. And that's what sends us off on the wrong road. That's what sent them off on the wrong road back in the Middle Ages. If we take it out of a kidnapping-type scene and instead put it in a courtroom scene and make it not an illegitimate claim of a kidnapper, but the legitimate claim that Satan had by virtue of Adam's obedience to him. It was a legal claim. Then we understand that the idea of ransom, it's not going to a kidnapper, but it's, it's a payment that is made to break the claim so that Satan has no more legal claim. And you really get this idea, again, of Jesus destroying the works of the devil. You really get this idea of Jesus harrowing hell. And that's part of the faith that led the early church to begin to call every year Anno Domini. We don't do things like that anymore. The church, we're way too, we're way too quaint. We see, you know, the gospel, the manger scene. Here comes, you know, Jesus. He appears. It's very personal. It's very quaint. It's, it's all of this. And it's like, yes, it is all of that. But we have to remember this cosmic dimension that Matthew starts out with. He just starts out with this, like this atom bomb that covers everything. And he says, Jesus has changed everything. He's the new Adam. He's made everything new. So you see then that there's no one who can ignore this Jesus. There's no one who can ignore this Jesus. Well, people can say 
Jesus, who is he, and what does he have to do with me? But that's like somebody saying, Adam, who is he, and what does he have to do with me? It's like, well, you may not know who he is. You may not think he has anything to do with you, but actually he explains you. You can't get away from Adam. So it's the same thing. Nobody can say, who is this Jesus, and what does he have to do with me? You're living in his world. You're breathing his air. Somebody who thinks that way and says that is like the small child who covers their eyes and says, you can't see me. No, you just can't see. (laughs) And so you get this feel immediately of the gospel, this whole new book that we're living in. And Matthew saying, everybody has to deal with Jesus. Everybody has to deal with Jesus. Everybody has to deal with this cosmic gospel. So as you in this new Advent season, as you have readings in your family, as you sing, as you celebrate the Advent season, and the very personalness of it, which don't get rid of that, that's very important, don't forget the cosmic, earth-shaking, earth-changing aspect, for we are living in the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.